also don't want to introduce our podcast anymore as Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. Like, that's... I know. It's a little weird now. It was a different it's time. It's so weird. It was a different... Well, it was a different <laughs> Kanye. I guess. Man, there's a lot of philosophy behind that, I think. Like, was, was it a different Kanye? Or was it the same Kanye? Now we just know better yeah. and know more. Yeah, it's not... Yeah, we'll definitely have to look into that for the future um it's not <laughs> it's it should represent things that we currently love which if you didn't catch on it yeah it was supposed to be like the you're right we need to switch it yeah but for now we need to talk about horror yes. movies podcast thing again and are we going to be doing this on a bi-weekly basis again who knows i can tell you one thing for sure though we are here because i have a grade that depends on it so let's get into it let's talk about why we are back for this uh i don't know uh what what's the word i'm looking for this uh sudden resurgence <laughs> it's resurgence <laughs> <laughs> of uh kitten whiskers and kanye oh, yes question mark yeah but we're just we're we're gonna start right into it um yeah so i am here because i have been taking a pop culture and communication class this semester and carmen has very generously joined with me so that i can do a podcast instead of a final paper <laughs> and verbally talk about what i've learned in this class and apply it to horror movies oh yes Carmen, do you even remember why we chose horror movies? Was it just something on our minds yeah, and we were just like... For sure, it was. I've been, I mean, personally, I've been watching like a disgusting amount of horror movies over the past few months. I've been starting to get really, really obsessed and I've been going through, it's, it's just been, it's like constantly on my mind. I've been amassing like a list of best horror in multiple sub genres. So yeah, whenever you and I meet up for coffee or something, it's like always the first thing that comes to mind because it's just what I've been doing in my free time. So yeah, I I, th I I don't know. We, you and I just always talk about movies and books and stuff. So yeah, it came up. It just randomly came up. Yeah, just uh, I think it was just kind of a natural flow of our conversation. And I was like, hey, can you do this with me? And you were like, yeah, let's do horror movie. And I was like, yeah, that's yeah, that great. Gentle suggestion, because I can't think of anything <laughs> else. Right. It's like, yeah, it's weird. I, I think um, we must have been talking about school, too, because I mean, that's all that's on I my know. mind right now is is school. I'm approaching finals week. And even though I don't have a lot of final exams mm -hmm. per se i do have a lot of final projects and final papers yeah. too um kind of going back to what i said before this is a much more agreeable option to me than doing yet another paper at some point one of us brought up cult classics as well because you're talking about popular culture and like a bunch of aspects of that and i always hear the term um, a cult classic usually associated with like horror movies and so that was also a connection that must have been made at some point. Yeah. So that being said, let's let's get into the meat of it. Like I said, this is for a pop culture class. And it probably initially sounds like a lot of 
just talking about, I don't know, whatever is showing up in People magazine and talking about like the actual media, like what medium we are consuming our culture through. But the class has actually been a lot more in depth than that. It's been more of a philosophical take on popular culture and culture in general. So the first thing that I want to do is I want to kind of give a definition of what popular culture is. And Carmen, if you have anything to add in, um, feel free to contribute because the thing about popular culture is that it's very fluid. Hmm. There's a lot of people that will say like, yeah, popular culture is basically the culture that is popular at the time. Like it's on the label there, but it's actually a lot deeper than that. And there's a lot of movement to it because what popular culture really is, is the push and pull dynamic between the people in power and the corporations in power and the commodities that they are producing and the way that the masses take those commodities and give them their own meaning so we can't say that, Did like, you come up with just that because. Uh, I mean, I mean, throughout your readings, it's... you've probably like that's really yeah, good. that's really nice. Oh, well, thank you. Very I really scholarly. appreciate that. It's very, it's very Marxist in nature, um, which a lot of, I, I'm gonna say, like, ninety five percent of communication philosophy and theory is very Marxist in nature, hmm. where you have the bourgeoisie who are in control of pretty much everything, right? And then you have the proletariat that's, like, pushing back and trying to um, Gain. claim yeah. anything of their own, right? And so this is literally just that, but you put the word culture into the middle there, yeah. right? Like, this is... So it can't just be, like, everybody has a TV set, and that is popular culture. Because... There's no, like, push and pull dynamic there. Yeah. What is popular culture is what you choose to see on TV mm -hmm. and how you interpret that. Okay. So, like, if I were to try to come up with a current example, I personally find it really hard to find pop culture, let alone, like, counterculture these days. Because, as I assume we're going to talk about, the speed of culture is very fast these days. It's like a two-week life expectancy for something to I don't know it's maybe that's a bit extreme but I'm thinking about phones having a phone itself is not pop culture everyone has a phone but that a lot of of a specific generation are using it for TikTok um and expressing themselves through TikTok that's maybe a pop culture movement yeah that is absolutely pop culture TikTok is not in itself pop culture because you have to remember that when you go on to TikTok, there are corporations who do have their own TikTok accounts. Mm -hmm. And the way that we choose to interact with those accounts, that is where pop culture lies. And the way that people react to those accounts and the way that they make their own content and why they're making that content and what that content says, that is where pop culture I is. I see. Okay. So that's kind of a broad definition um, but we're going to go into some like more philosophical aspects of pop culture, kind of break it down into 
different frames that we can look at it through because there's a lot of people who have said a lot of different things about pop culture, both positive and negative, like optimistic and very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. I prefer to be an optimist myself. Uh, so yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm going to focus on a couple of the optimists. But I think there is also value in looking at what some of the pessimists have to say, because ultimately, I think that when we talk about pop culture and the way that we interact with it, um, having the choice of how we interact with it is more important than just about and anything what we, Even what we like actually understanding. do with it, but having the yeah. choice too. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah. Because ultimately, you can't get away from pop culture. You just can't. Not unless you're like... I am going to live completely off the grid, no electronics, no books, like nothing. I am just, all I'm going to do is just whittle twigs all day. Like, I think that is the only way that you can actually avoid pop culture. So the three main philosophers that I want to talk about today in the context of like horror movies and how horror movies have become such a huge part of our popular culture is Henry Jenkins and his idea of convergence culture, John Fisk and his theory of incorporation and excorporation, and then a couple of gentlemen called Adorno and Horkheimer and their idea of culture industry. Going into what Henry Jenkins has to say about convergence culture, he basically talks about how Fans take ownership of their favorite media and create communities that create new media and experiences and meaning with each other. The example of convergence culture that he likes to give the most frequently is the Harry Potter Alliance, which, I mean, if we want to talk about, like, J.K. Rowling and her political stance and, like, how that might have affected people engaging with the Harry Potter Alliance... Mm -hmm that's completely different it's kind of aged a little poorly we're talking about like the early 2000s here when he was talking about this but basically it was people who said hey i like harry potter i see you like harry potter let's get together let's do some good in the world and put that harry potter branding on it because that's what drew us together John Fisk and his theory of incorporation and excorporation is that as the masses or the proletariat take what is produced um, and give it new meaning that is rebelling against the bourgeoisie, corporations will then take the items with their new meanings and produce it en masse, thus keeping rebellions and rebellious ideas in line and making them... um, acceptable like culturally acceptable and kind of uh defanging some of these uh new ideas and and not making them dangerous anymore the example that john fisk gives of his theory of incorporation and corporation actually has to do with genes and how ripped genes at one point were like super rebellious because you're taking an item of clothing an article of clothing and you are intentionally destroying it to send a message and if you think about it like the people who wore ripped jeans for a very long time were considered dangerous almost but then once levi's and lee and guest jeans said you know what if people are gonna wear this anyway 
we're just going to go ahead and pre-rip their jeans for them. <laughs> That's when all of a sudden, like, it's it's not dangerous anymore. Yeah. Once you see it on a mannequin at Gap, like, that's it. <laughs> There's nothing implied just... by a pre-ripped gene. There's no, yeah, I get, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, no, no important meaning there. You are just part of the fashion industry <laughs> at that point. And this sounds kind of pessimistic, but it is actually inherently optimistic because when you look at it from that point of view what you're saying is that we still have a choice in the items that we consume and how we consume them and we can choose to give those things meaning yeah and it is unfortunate that like when it is incorporated back into mainstream culture like it kind of loses that yeah. meaning but it's still very cyclical like that is not the end of the way that the masses produce meaning. Indeed. And then the third set of philosophies that we're going to look at um, is Adorno and Horkheimer's culture industry. They say that nothing is original. Every piece of media we consume is based off of a tired, boring formula. And we are all complicit in accepting what we are given. That... We say, okay. <laughs> yeah, we enjoy this thing, but like, it is what it is, and I enjoy it, and I'm not going to be critical of it at all. Yeah. So now that we have that baseline, let's actually talk about horror movies, shall oh, we? Oh, yes. Let's do it. Yes. So first, a disclaimer. Um, I, like, I feel weird talking about horror movies as if I really do like have a really big encompassing repertoire or whatever um i i don't actually know a ton about horror movies i just know i love them and um i talk as if i am like an authority and that's not supposed to actually be that's not actually how i am i just um horror fans like mega horror fans intimidate me in the sense that um i feel like often they get really um possessive or like about owning like that as a hobby or something which is anyway, my main disclaimer is, is I'm going to, I don't, I'm not a, a horror movie expert. Um, I don't want to come off that way, but, um, I know as much as I know about them and Audrey and I can only give you our own personal opinions and stuff. Yeah. But like that being said, I like, I'll keep that disclaimer in <laughs> because honestly, like when it comes down to it, you don't have to be an expert to. Yeah, to talk about something. When it, yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I get that. And and especially when it comes to popular culture, like we are all experts because we all give meaning to the things that we consume. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, that's a good it, point. You know, and and I'm thinking uh, like on Reddit there's a horror sub that I frequent and it's um a horror movie sub and like if you say <laughs> If you say anything weird on there that's, like, against, against the norm and in, like, a boring or uncool way, they're really passionate about def defending the things that they love. Cult, like, especially those cult classics, right? Like, where a lot of identity is kind of tied into having been a fan maybe for a, lo a little bit longer than someone else and having picked up on that before it got accepted by the machine and spit back out or whatever i think that type of like hipsterdom and fanat fanaticism is is a lot of is in horror fans a ton i'm gonna give a janky not 
comprehensive history of horror movies. Audrey and I kind of brainstormed and, you know, obviously took notes and stuff. And so this is our little, this is our little interpretation of the history of horror. We have really early horror, which pretty much started right when movies started being made. Um, House of the Devil was released in 1896. And um, like movies are Nosferatu, which I can't get through without falling asleep. <laughs> and The Cabinet of Dr. <laughs> Caligari, um, which I watched very recently, enjoyed quite a bit. Possibly the oldest example of a like twist in a, in a movie. Um, and again, movies like Freaks. Um, all black and white. Some of them talky, some of them not. And then um, very seamlessly, we get into the Alfred Hitchcock era, which is named what it is named because he really is he he really he defines this era um with psycho and the birds and rear window and all the all that good stuff um a lot of inspiration for later horror he was the giant whose shoulders many horror filmmakers stand upon moving (laughs) it seems like the, the alfred hitchcock era I don't know how long that lasted, but the next little era we have that seemed to stick out to Audrey and myself was the zombie film takeoff, like Night of the Living Dead, which I absolutely loved. Um, and zombie films kind of seemed like a really popular thing to do for a while. And I don't know if it's because zombie stories are just ripe with meaning and you can do a lot of cultural exploring as well as do zombie scary bloody stuff. Uh, it's really fun to do, like, character studies with zombie movies. And I've seen arguments mostly on Tumblr. So, like, you know, take this with the most massive pinch of salt that you can. Um, of people commenting that horror movies really reflect some of the biggest fears that society have at the time. Mm-hmm. And so when you see, we didn't really talk about it because it's more of a monster movie, not so much horror, but, like, when you see Godzilla and those monster movies take off, like what was the fear at the time? Well, nuclear war. We discovered the <laughs> nuclear bomb. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we know that it causes mutations yes. and that, you know, what horrors will spring up from the deep setting off mm-hmm. all of these nuclear bombs in the ocean. Yes. And then you move into the zombie films and like, what is the concern there? Like, oh, well, we've got more chemicals that are working their way not only into our foods, but, like, into our household appliances and our cleaners and makeup. And And there's also, like, a a fear of uh, uncleanliness, like, of spirit. I don't know, like, zombies following, you know, just orders from, like, a government or from a pop, maybe a pop culture thing, but just mindlessly becoming part of the mass and stuff like that. Right, yeah. And... That being said, I think that after this era, that thought of like, well, what are people most afraid of? And that is what we are making our horror movies around kind Mm -hmm. of loses the thread a little bit. But I think it's a really interesting thought experiment. I I do see it even happening now. And that's why we get a lot of cosmic horror and a lot of um, like borderline like threat, like allegorical stuff, like get out where Mm -hmm. it's like the horrors are not like no, we're not seeing a ton of monsters in our horror movies lately. Um, Maybe because the thing itself is so like hard to grasp and insidious that it can't be, it can't even be represented by something, you know, as clonky as Godzilla or by, you know, zombies. It's like, I don't know. It's hard to explain. Um, I'll talk about that when we start talking about Nick Cage though. So I'll save that. (laughs) Um, 
Like, getting I, back on track. Yeah. <laughs> I could, we could do a whole episode about Cage. Whatever. Post-zombie. This stuff includes things like Rosemary's Baby, which I have not worked up the courage to watch yet. Um, the Exorcist, The Omen, um, both of which are very satanic in nature. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is just about one of my favorite slashers, for sure. Um, and we have a lot. This is all before a really, really big, important moment in movie history, which is the original blockbuster, Jaws. That movie and Spielberg himself set so many precedents for like pacing and and expectations of the crowd and what a movie should look like if you want to and it, I don't, he probably didn't even do it on purpose it's just his it's it's his style but he built a perfectly formulated horror movie with jaws and it shook like everyone it it's such it's just i i don't know someone who doesn't love that movie or at least appreciate that that it's amazing and scary and so well acted that changed a lot of things. The movies that came right before that that I named are just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is so not the type of um, formulaic t- uh, movie that Jaws was that drew people in. I'm pretty sure Texas Chainsaw Massacre was what you would consider a cult classic and it was alienating in a really um, uncomfortable way. Um, but then Jaws just comes along and, and for good, for better and worse, sets down a precedent of um, how to get as much frisson out of your crowd as as possible. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And so from here on out, there, not even in the horror genre, but from here on out, there is there are very few directors that have been have not been influenced by Steven Spielberg in some sort of way. And that includes people who try really hard to go against a very established grain now that he set down. Like I said, for better and for worse. Um, Post-Jaws era, we have movies like Alien, which is, again, another perfectly formulated thriller slash horror. Carrie, Halloween, Poltergeist, Evil Dead, and The Thing. Also, just one of the best... Oh my gosh, I could... I know... Okay. Um, One of the best horror movies ever, The Thing. Uh, This era is characterized by just a lot of Spielberg's own little tricks and trades of the um the movie industry they are dramatic and they have very very good characterization in my opinion and acting and they follow a very satisfying formula early 90s and 2000s <laughs> this is where it's so hard to stay on on some sort of path um there are so many different types of movies coming out all the time that we don't even know and of course not all the horror movies that came out between the 90s and the 2000s were what you would consider kitschy gore but that's just kind of what stood out to me and audrey about like the biggest movies maybe that stood the test of time and how they like what characterized 2000 horror and it was Movies like Saw, Final Destination, Hostel, Cannibal Holocaust, uh, Scream, Evil Dead, Tremors. <laughs> that one seems so out of place, I gotta be honest. I, I think all the movies that came before Tremors are... <laughs> I think I put that later because I love Kevin Bacon and that movie scared me <laughs> so bad. Um, all of those movies are very focused on shock value. <sighs> and you know, I, I've seen a few of those. I don't prefer them. I... I it's it's as far away from how do we symbolize horror in a you know monster kind of way it's as far away from that as i think it can get it's very in your face you know there are crazy people out there there's crazy fate waiting to kill you like it's just going to happen kind of. i mean 
Final Destination is very, very much a cosmic horror thing for sure. I just, I don't, I don't prefer this genre, but I don't knock anyone who does because it takes a stomach for sure. And now we kind of get off our timeline now because this chunk of movies I'm about to bring up were definitely coming out at the same time as the kitschy gore era. Um, Stephen King had some pretty amazing old stuff come out. The It series, um, the one from the 80s, I believe, was really good. Carrie was really good. Um, the Shining, as little as he had to do with that, was also really good, being inspired by his his book. Um, but this kind of carried on after the 2000s. We still have a lot of Stephen King movies coming out. And so he's not, I, I don't think, a name quite up there with um, Steven Spielberg in terms of, like, ground shaking. But his his movies and stories always have, um, I don't know. They've all, they've always, they've touched people for a reason. There's a, there's a lot of dread and in his stories and they're just endlessly remakeable. In my opinion, Dr. Sleep came out recently. I I always had a soft spot for 1408. It didn't get great reviews, but I really liked it. <laughs> I think honestly, I also have a soft spot for 1408. Cause I think that was like the first real horror movie that I ever watched. Which was, like, after Nick and I got married. Like, it was so recent. I am such a baby when it comes to horror movies. That's fine. It's so funny. I crave that. I'll I'll end up watching a horror movie and I'll be like, oh, this wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. Yeah. I'm sure that, like, I could probably jump into some of, like, the darkest movies and end up being like, Oh. oh, no, that's just a a monster movie. That's not a horror movie. It's just a monster movie. Right. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I I think f- I have some very special places in my heart for those movies for when I like first started doing it too. Fourteen oh eight does seem like kind of an older one that I watched as well. Um, it's hard to get your, you know, those those first time encounters out of your heart. Um, however, Secret Window <laughs> did not hold up. I am H O. I just watched it with Michael. It was not so great. Um, it was like two thirds of the, this, this is always a trend. I've not always often a trend, like 80% of the time, horror movies are so good for the first three quarters. And then something happens in the last, um, half hour that just does not sit. It doesn't, it's not very satisfying for me. I find a lot of endings to not be so satisfying. That doesn't detract too much from my overall enjoyment though. Um, No. And I think that's actually a really good comment leading into our next kind of era here that we mm -hmm. talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're moving on to psychological movies, psychological horror, which again was still kind of happening in the nineties and the two thousands movies like what lies beneath, which Audrey hasn't seen yet. And she really needs to watch, um, <laughs> the others, which, oh my gosh, I think I watched this every Friday with my best friend for maybe a year when we were like 12, we were obsessed with this movie. I, I think I've seen it maybe 30 times. Um, the ring, uh, the grudge. Paranormal Activity, Shutter Island. Shutter Island was good. Um, yeah. I, th- this is, yeah, these are the movies where it's like, there's some, <laughs> I don't know how to explain these. They're, they're, they, some of them are straight up thrillers, like What Lies Beneath. And some of them are kind of not even, I wouldn't say satanic, but like ghostly. And there's always mm-hmm. been ghost movies, but there's something about this era of ghost movies that is particularly good (laughs) yeah well because it kind of bridges the gap between like the super campy monster movies with you know the ghosts that have the sheets thrown over them right like Mm -hmm. that's wandering through the hallways and you're like oh no uh, oh you're you're just wandering (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, but then also like the super demonic stuff back in the era of, you know, like the exorcist and Rosemary's baby. Mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, like I said, I think that that was kind of bridging the gap between those two genres and yeah. kind of figuring out um, how to pull that off in a way that when we get closer to the era that we are currently living in right now, which yeah. we call the like post Peel and A24 era, really kind of took that in between space and refined it and made it something its own. Totally. Um, and yeah, so Audrey just brought up Jordan Peele, um, the other highlighted name on my timeline of horror. He, uh, uh, Get Out, uh, Audrey mentioned Get Out. That movie changed a lot in how current horror is made in a, almost like, I don't know. I haven't, it's like, it's, it's just like Spielberg. It seems irreversible. It's such a good, it's such a good template to work off of that. It's definitely maybe being milked like to its exhaustive you know end <laughs> that's sad but i it, it's hard for me to imagine horror movies getting much better than this um there's a movie called it follows that did come out before get out and i that movie holds a very special place in my heart as well and it did not grab people like get out did i think it was just as well made but it was um it def- it wasn't as silly and poppy as Get Out was. It's just there's something about Get Out that is so irresistible. It is so funny and s- like within with with a in an instant so scary and real. Um, and it obviously represented a very what I assume is a very real fear in a lot of the black community of being shoved down into the um, what is the sunken place to watch you know to watch themselves be taken advantage of. It's, it's, it's so, so scary and so good. And everything after that, A24, the movie studio makes movies that like, they don't put out a movie that isn't the A24 brand now, which to me is very much a post peel brand um, using his um, poppiness and his humor and I don't even know what else is. And there's a lot of stuff mixed in there in his genius. But movies like Hereditary, which some poor sap on the horror sub <laughs> posted and saying, like, if you haven't watched Hereditary yet, it's great. It's it's really good. And everyone on there just ripped him to shreds because they're like, oh, Hereditary, <laughs> the movie that's, you know, everyone's been talking. Oh, I hadn't thought to watch it. And that's why I get scared to comment anything on there because all this guy did, he didn't go top all time and read all the top posts. He didn't know. He li- He probably, maybe it's the first horror movie he's seen in a while and he just wanted to make a suggestion and the horror group is just like, yeah, we're aware. Thanks. <laughs> um, the Dark and the Wicked, that scared my husband more than he said any movie has in the past 10 years. Um, another Stephen King, Gerald's Game, which I love. The Haunting of Hill House, which is not a movie, but a series, but has to be included in this list. The Witch, The Lighthouse, Green Knight. Um, who's that director that did those? Um, Robert Eggers. Also a very singular, weird style of a dude. These movies are masterpieces. Before we had... We had movies like Halloween where they really took advantage of the shakiness of like the first person view and stuff. We have found footage stuff and we even Texas Chainsaw, which wasn't purposefully, you know, kind of intimate. I'm a part of this kind of a maybe it was. I don't know. But these are these are 
masterpieces of a movie. Every shot is um, formulated and holds a lot of things that you can, you know, you won't pick up on the first time. The dialogue is very, very precisely crafted so that, you know, the director weaves you into this really, really intense story. I'm thinking specifically of The Green Knight, which I always forget when I'm thinking about horror, but is certainly um, a horror. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the this is the era we're in right now, and it's a wonderful place to be because it's just I love all I, all of these movies on this list. I'm just obsessed with um, Smile. Maybe it was a bit of a letdown. I thought it was a ripoff of It Follows, but it's that's also not really a hot take, so it's fine. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this is where we are. Yeah, and I think kind of going back to that idea of like, what are we most horrified by right now? Like, what are we most scared of? I think A24 is doing a really good job of incorporating the way that we treat nature and posing this question, like, what if nature pushed back? Because even though they aren't necessarily like monster movies. Mm-hmm. I think that when you think of A24, you think of something that takes place in dark nature. The Green Knight, for example, the main character has to go out and meet this Green Knight and he has to travel over all of these like gorgeous landscapes that hold deep horrors mm-hmm. underneath them. Yeah. And uh Midsummer, for example, oh, you yeah. see all of these like beautiful shots of this green and all of these flowers and but again like there's all of this deeply sinister stuff going on yeah i would include the witch in there too the the pastoral horror is particularly jarring (laughs) even though it's not direct commentary on how we are causing irreparable harm to our planet through climate change i think there is still that underlying message of we cannot expect our actions to go unpunished for much longer. Yeah. I think the best metaphors or allegories or whatever, which that's a whole other period, the allegorical horror, the mother and men, those both are so weird. Mm -hmm. I think the, those are very heavy handed allegories. And I think my favorite ones like are the ones that very lightly allude to something that could like, cause Michael, Michael picked up on that in the green night, maybe at the second viewing that he was just like, the, there, it, everything is so green but like everything is so deadly and stuff it's it's really really cool when it's done really artfully and subtly which it seems to always be done in it with for robert eggers especially but also just a lot of a24 re- movies so now that we've gone over the history or like our own personal interpretation of the history of horror films let's talk about it from these different philosophies that i mentioned So the first one that I want to talk about and the one that I know Carmen is most excited to talk about is horror from a convergence culture frame. So just as a reminder, this is where people come together and they bond over shared interests, but then also produce not only new meaning, but like actually new content and projects and media revolving around the the original content that they are bonding over Mm -hmm. and this is where we really need to talk about what a cult classic is and this was actually kind of a difficult conversation for us to get through because there's so many things that it could mean and there's not really one like set definition when it comes to specifically movies right Mm -hmm. so we eventually 
came to a couple of different definitions. And the first one actually comes from Carmen's husband, Michael, who we were just like, I don't know, man, like if you were asked to define it like on the spot, (laughs) (laughs) he defined it as a movie that has a small following upon initial release, gained more of a following as time went by, and where the initial group was passionate enough about it that they kept it on the radar long enough for it to reach more people. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a really great definition of, like, the process of it. Yeah. But, like, when we come to the definition of it, I propose that it happens when people latch onto the themes and symbols or icons from their favorite movies, turning the films into enduring landmarks in pop mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know what you think about that, but that's <laughs> yeah, what the I en- eventually landed on. The enduring part. I like that. Um, it. It annoys me in a sense that some cult classics will always be like in the same sense that the term classics is applied to a very almost decided a long time ago, set in stone set of uh, books and stuff. And like, okay, enough people said these were classics that now like the defining themselves as classes classics is perpetuated by them having been classics before. (laughs) But I do think Mm -hmm. I, I do think that it's with movies it might be a little bit of the same thing but um yeah it might be a little bit of the same thing but we have something like the thing which upon initial release like wasn't groundbreaking but but it was always as good as it was like the movie didn't change um and why did it take a little bit longer for it to like solidify itself in horror history maybe it's just because it was liked by a smaller group of people who like you said were passionate for long enough that um, its influence stuck around and was able to reach more people. And if it's who who maybe didn't have it marketed towards them or didn't respond to the type of marketing that it was putting out, um, which I love for horror because a lot of people, um, maybe, no, that's not true. People love horror. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do think that the people who are um, repelled or just, just really dislike horror don't respond to that marketing for sure. But I mean, if, if a movie is around and all your friends have said it's so good, maybe you might eventually watch it and it reaches a whole other group and type of person that might spread it to their family because I just, horror is, it reaches, it reaches all types of people. And, um, it maybe it just needs time. A weird movie like Donnie Darko too, which I just watched and it was, it was really good. Like, but also hard to, hard to receive for sure. Definitely not, um, I, I mean, it was formulaic in a way, in the way that like the acts came out, you know, act one, act two, whatever, but, um, still very surprising and psychological and weird, just weird. And just really weird. Yeah. 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 I really like the thing as an example of convergence culture in action, because if you think about it, we actually play the thing, the game in our teens. Have you ever played like mafia or werewolf? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, there's this element of people looking at the theme of the monster looks exactly like one of us and changing it into something new and incorporating it into freaking party games. And it's funny because, like, you also look at games like Among Us, and that is the Uh thing, the game, right? Um, before it was ever the thing too, it was invasion of the body snatchers, even like the, the, the question of like, who, who is it? Who has it is, yeah, that's, that's way, that's super old. And it's, 
it's thrilling for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because there's this element of like, well, you look like my best friend, but are you my best friend mm-hmm. or are you going to kill me? I don't know. Yeah, another just, you know, maybe not so subtle metaphor for, you know, losing people to a whole host of things, Ill- actual illness or losing them to um, an ideology. Yeah, like I said, the zombie, the zombie sneaky kind of thing. That's just it's just begging for to be written. <laughs> there's so much. That's there's true. still so much you can do with it. I mean, look at uh, Last of Us. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry, it's gonna sound like I get hung up on the thing, but I really like it as a, an example of convergence culture because I don't know if you know this, Carmen. There is a board game that is officially a the thing board game, <laughs> and I have played it. I should and get I should get that. Good. Yeah, I it, should like, get that for Michael. <laughs> and it's good, but it's not as good as playing mafia with your friends. Oh yes. Or hopping online and playing Among Us. And the huge difference between the thing, the board game, like the official one, and these other games is the other games were fan created, essentially, <laughs> whether they realized it or not, like it is a fan creation. <laughs> and another example of convergence culture in action is when people get together and watch Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight. And I personally have never gone to one, but it's something that's on my bucket list because I would love to like get into all of the research of like what I need to bring with me and how I need to be prepared for a midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show, which even though that movie is so old, people are still like, no, you've got to go watch it with other people in the theater. Yeah. And none of the like shouting at the screen, throwing stuff around, doing the dance, none of that was implemented by the studios. That was all fan created. And that's magic. I Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think is, has more going for it as a cult classic than any other. Because that, uh, like Rocky Horror, that movie has content and characters that definitely aren't, like, graspable by the community at large. So it definitely, well, at least when it came out originally. So it was definitely embraced by a smaller group of people than you would think at this point in its timeline. Because, yeah, it, it grew and it reached more people because it stuck around. And if it didn't stick around with those people, it might not have made it to this age where it's received... Definitely with opener arms than before. Yeah. Moving on to John Fisk's Incorporation and Excorporation. So just again as a little review, this is the idea that the masses take the media that is produced or the goods that are produced by corporations and by the people in power and change it to mean something different. Um, something that pushes back against the uh, hegemony, actually, the ideas that are most prevalent in our society and saying, this is not for me um, in the way that it was intended to be, but I will make it my own. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about incorporation and excorporation, um, the difference between the two is that excorporation is that process of taking something and giving it new meaning and maybe making a subculture out of it or rallying around this altered version of something that is mass produced 
and the meaning that it has. Incorporation is when corporations or the people in power then re-take that back. (laughs) And like, it's so weird. It's so cyclical that it's like, it's taking it back, but also taking it back again and taking away that meaning. So the reason why I wanted to talk about this kind of hand in hand with convergence culture is because I kind of see ex-corporation and convergence culture as best friends. Oftentimes when people come together to create new content around a piece of media, they are also at the same time giving it new meaning. And I am fascinated by this phenomenon that happened a few years ago, the Babadook, and its emergence as an LGBTQ plus icon. (laughs) And it's something that I was like aware of on the periphery like I knew that for some reason people were like yeah the Babadook's gay but I had no idea how that came about yeah do you want to hear how it came about tell them how it came about tell me okay (laughs) (laughs) so there is a Vox article by Alex Abad Santos that was published in June of 2017 titled how the Babadook became the LGBTQ icon we didn't know we needed And in this article, he talks about how randomly people on Tumblr, because of course, Tumblr is where things like this happen, started insisting that the Babadook is gay. (laughs) And people, of course, are pushing back against it because it's like, well, no, there's no proof of that. Like supernatural entity. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, there are the people who are, like, in on the joke, right? And that's what it comes down to is, like, who is, quote, in on the joke? Who say things like, oh, yeah, well, whenever somebody says the Babadook isn't openly gay, it's like, question, question mark. Did you even watch the movie? (laughs) 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 That's so dumb. I mean, he created a pop-up book of himself for the drama of it all, another user wrote. And it all is just like obviously tongue in cheek and it's all one liners, but it just makes people laugh. And I think that that dissonance between people laughing at something that is a horror movie is just so entertaining to us that, of course, like, of course, people are going to start excorporating the Babadook Mm -hmm. and saying that he is an LGBTQ plus icon. And of course, just because I don't know if it was an accident or if it was an amazing Photoshop or if it was done on purpose. But in December 2016, a few months after this whole like discourse around the Babadook is gay, um, an Instagram user posted a picture of a Netflix menu that featured the Babadook in its LGBT movie section, <laughs> like alongside gbf and other people and i mean if people are not going to latch onto that immediately then they are now the yeah right <laughs> it's it's really good that, and like, it's it's so tender and like touching like oh it's who's gonna who's gonna fight against that that hard give, like let, let's definitely give them the babadook why not mm-hmm <laughs> Now, that's an example of ex-corporation, and there's not much that corporations did to kind of, like, 
push back against that because it kind of stayed mostly in its own little sphere. But there are other examples of how certain subgenres of horror movies start to get popular and how studios react to that. And as Carmen and I were coming up with our list of like horror movies through the years and the history of horror movies, there were some movies that we just kind of had to set aside because it didn't really fit in with all of the other movies of its genre. And we had to look at them and finally give it its own subgenre of creepypastas <laughs> or fireside stories, right? Yeah, that was cool. That was so cool when we when when you when we came upon that. It's that that it's it's just such a part. Of course, they're creepypastas. The original creepypastas were always campfire stories. It's amazing. <laughs> And there are horror movies that even if they are distributed by major movie studios, they still have that element of ex-corporation of taking these themes and changing them into something that is so unrecognizable that the unrecognizability is part of the horror. Hmm. And so for me, in my own generation, I remember the Blair Witch Project when it came out and how that movie was just like not only something that had never been seen before, but people were like, there is never going to be a scarier movie after this. Like, this is going to be the Aww. ultimate scary movie. And honestly, it really was the scariest movie for a long time. Yes. Yeah, that that yes, for sure. It got under people's skin. It seemed yeah. real. It could have been real. There there was there was room for it to be realer than a lot of other horror movies. Just like those stories, you know, the the creepy passes that you pass down and are like, you know, my cousin's cousin's friend had had this happen to him or whatever. And so we see a lot of different examples of this through the years. So creepy pastas I thought I was clever thinking this, but um, it's definitely also not another hot, hot take. I'm the queen of, like, lukewarm takes. War of the Worlds, I read that book and it was I, but the movie, oh my goodness, was amazing. But the radio show, it's like, oh, yeah. that one, that, that radio show, when did that come out? Like, the f- 50s? It, I, we should probably look that up. Oh my goodness, 1938. So War of the Worlds, the radio broadcast, started broadcasting in 1938, and there was little or no warning that this was like a story for entertainment, and it freaked a lot of people out. Um, And it, like, that's not my main point here, but it was one of those, it was one of those original, like, could it be real kind of things, the creepypasta kind of element of... I heard it on the radio or I heard it from a friend or no, like this really definitely really happened to me. Candyman too. Or if you think about Bloody Mary, like the games you'd play mm-hmm. with your friends to crap your pants, um, going into the bathroom and in the dark and saying Candyman or, oh my goodness, so scary. And that stuff that I was always a sucker for that stuff because I felt <laughs> this dumb sense of like kinship with my friends after we were like t- freaking each other out and we did it together and all this stuff. Um, I have a list here. The Hookman car thing. Everyone knows that story. The kids are getting it on in the car and to inappropriate levels. And 
he gets distracted and goes out and there's a hook on the car. There's a, they hear that radio broadcast that there's a man on the loose and he tells his girlfriend. Anyway, everyone knows that silly kind of, um, (laughs) their email forwards too, aren't they? Like there's so many names for this kind of thing. Um, and the ritual as well, which was an amazing horror movie, the wicker man and La La Llorona. Is that how you Mm -hmm. say that? The 2019 non-American version. Uh, those are folk tales. Those are like the kinds of stories that before all of this, in in the earliest forms of civilization, you would think that people gathered around and told stories of stories of warning, stories of caution. Um, they're all, almost all cautionary tales of, you know, don't go out at night. The monster's out there in the forest or don't have premarital sex or the hook man's going to come get you, which is what... Um, Friday the 13th is all about and I had no idea I watched that it was amazing uh, these are yeah these are the these are old folks t- folk tales old campfire stories which then turned into you know the the stories that we do pass on to each other about the Blair Witch and and you know passing on stories about or passing on emails about I guess I guess my whole point I I I really love this type of horror too because it's like a type of horror that has lasted a while. It's the the I heard from a friend, from a relative, this really happened. Maybe the question is always there and they're cautionary tales and they really bring together a community for whatever reason. Um everyone, you know, everyone knows about Bloody Mary and everyone is freaked out by well not everyone. As kids, everyone's freaked out by it and it like bonds you. It's it's a tribal thing almost, you know? Yeah, for sure. And and because of that tribal feeling, it is separating us from, you know, the mainstream, from corporations. You yeah, don't feel it feels like, like you it are is. a member of the masses at that point. You feel like you are in a much smaller, closer, tight knit community that has given meaning to these stories that no faceless corporation ever could yeah yeah exactly unfortunately they try (laughs) they try which is how we get to horror comedies Mm -hmm. and this is a beloved genre it it really is it is unfortunate that these are incorporated movies but they're there a lot of them are also really good and hit the mark really really good really well in terms of like the balance of horror and comedy. So yes, while they're incorporated, um, these are also pretty great movies, but are a result of, yeah, definitely a result of being incorporated and spat back out to what the man thinks that we want, maybe? Right, yeah. No, it's exactly what it is. It's the man saying, hey, we see what you like. We're going to take it and add comedy to these movies. Um, Not only so that it appeals to a wider audience, (laughs) but so that the the teeth are taken away it's not quite so frightening and it's not pushing back against the norm quite so much right yeah yeah it's a it's a it's less risky for them to to present it this way but it also it takes a little bit of the pressure off of like oh you know drag me to hell wasn't that scary because we were trying to be funny and it's like an excuse to be tongue-in-cheek about it and maybe not do an amazing job but yeah to also take the teeth away and appeal to more people Right. And so 
like, yeah, I completely agree with you that a lot of these movies I really genuinely enjoy. I love Zombieland. I love Warm Bodies. Yeah. I love Cabin in the Woods. I know people who are genuinely horrified and, like, scared of Cabin in the Woods. Oh. And I just (laughs) don't get it because I am like, no, did you watch it? It's funny. I know. It is supposed to be hilarious. And and yeah, it's rated R because there is some imagery that you're just kind of like, ooh, that's kind of gross. Yeah, it's gory for sure. But like, that's just, it's it's immediately offset by just this, this, this stupid hijinks that the cast gets into. Um, and then the babysitter too, the babysitter was stylized in a really comic booky way. And I feel like that brought a lot of humor into it. Like it was very, um, fast paced and, um, literally kind of sometimes poppy and snappy and stuff. And just very, it, it kind of took me off my guard with how like randomly silly it would get with its shots and with its random zoom ins and stuff. And that was scary too. Like that one had a lot of gore and I mean, not as scary as maybe Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, but though they're so much fun. And um, there's another movie on here called One Cut of the Dead. It's a Japanese film and it's like so meta, like, but so up its own butt meta that it becomes funny again <laughs> instead of annoying. Like, you know, you get to meta where it's like, ooh, interesting. Then it's funny and then it's annoying and then it's funny again because it's too absurd to be anything else. Same with Haosu, I feel. I, 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 these are really, really good movies, but I do feel, I do feel like they were, yeah, definitely made with the intent of we'll get more money in if we mix in this genre. And even stepping aside from horror comedies, I mean, corporations are always going to try and make money wherever they can. So they do recognize that the diehard fans of horror films are willing to spend money in order to get their next adrenaline fix. Which is why I find it fascinating. Have Have you heard of the streaming service Shutter? Oh yeah, I've been mm-hmm. trying to convince myself to not get a um, account because I don't need another streaming service. <laughs> <laughs> but I find it so fascinating. So for anybody that doesn't know, Shutter is a streaming service that has nothing but horror, thriller, and suspense movies. That's it. You are not going to find any like Turner Classic movie jo- dramas on there. You're not going to find any like rom-coms on there. It's all horror. And I cannot for the life of me think of any other streaming service that is like that. Yeah. That is like, oh yeah, this is specifically for fans of romantic comedies. Yeah, that does it's only the horror fans could, could only only they could sense from horror fans that there was that much demand to see these movies. Like horror yeah. fans, definitely they they're so grateful for that. <laughs> but only they could be passionate enough and as gentle. Like I call them gentle weirdos, the people that love those cult classics. Only they could be weird enough to like silently demand uh, a streaming service specifically for that genre. <laughs> right. And finally, I think that the talk about um, the streaming services and about horror comedies and. The movies that we do like, even though we recognize that there's not really anything unique about them, brings us to the idea of culture industry. So this idea of culture industry was created by the critical theorists Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer. And they wrote this idea of um, the culture industry, enlightenment as mass deception, 
in response to what they saw when they came to the United States and observed the like movies and TV shows that people were consuming. And they were horrified by it. They were very, very pessimistic when it comes to the idea of popular culture because they said nothing is unique. Nothing has any deep meaning to it because all anybody is doing is using the same exact cookie cutter and just, I don't know, putting different chocolate chips into their batter. Like, (laughs) it's not a perfect metaphor, but like, that's what they were seeing is that not only were the people who were producing content producing the same thing over and over and over again, but that the masses that were consuming it were perpetuating this by being very complicit and passive in their consumption and not actually pushing back and saying like, hey, we actually don't really like this and we want to see something new. We don't want another source or we don't want another saw five. We don't. We- right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that especially when it comes to horror movies, they do have a point. And the easiest thing to point out is exactly that, right? Like, we don't want another Saw movie franchise. I don't even know how many movies that franchise has. I'm uh, pretty sure it's, like, up to 14 or something stupid like that, uh, right? Maybe, like, seven. Um, how many <laughs> Saw movies are... And I say seven, acting as if that's a lower number. Uh, four, but that's still crazy. Okay. Um, ten... Damn, I, that was a lot more than I expected. <laughs> that's, that's too bad. Oh, well. <laughs> but I see where, like, Adorno and Horkheimer would be absolutely, no pun intended, horrified by the horror genre. Because long-lasting horror franchises are, I think, an epidemic. Not only Saw, but if you look at Scream, I think we have, what, its sixth yeah. movie that came out recently? We've got all of the Halloween movies. We have all of the alien movies. And you can argue that the alien movies are good. And I will not argue back. Uh Like, I know. But still, it's an example. You're right. Yeah. But it is an example of people were like, yeah, the masses really enjoyed this alien movie. Let's make more. Let's not risk something new. It's, yeah, it's not. It's not risky. It's not interesting it's just this is what people are happy with yes and it makes me sad to say that because i watched prey recently oh my gosh the most recent installment (laughs) of the predator franchise right very good it was so good i know and i want to be able to stick up for it and be like no this is different but let's examine the horror movie story beats for a moment right yes Every horror movie is still the average hero's journey. You have your protagonist who there's some sort of the inciting action. Call to action. That Yeah, there's, there's the call to action. Usually it's that there's some sort of horror out there that they need to fight against. There's the climax where the hero kills the monster, defeats the evil, whatever. And then you have the resolution where you're like, yeah, everything is good. Maybe the hero is scarred a little bit. Oh, 
but wait, maybe the monster isn't dead. And then it fades to black. Yeah. And then now it plays a super poppy happy song when it fades to black in the credits roll. I don't know what Mm -hmm. that trend, where it came from or what they think it's doing. But anyway, go on. (laughs) No, but it's, it's that weird notion, I think, of, well, this worked once. And so we're going to use it again and again and again and again. Yeah. So I'm sure I... I don't know what the original horror movie was that ended on a poppy song um, or the original trailer for a horror movie that takes, you know, the trend I'm talking about that takes a children's song and slows it down and puts it in a minor key. They just want contrast. They want contrast for sure. They want something close to you or nice to be contrasted with the not nice to make the not nice seem not nicer, you know? Mm-hmm. I get the and reason, but I don't respect it. <laughs> yeah. You know who else I don't respect? Who? Is M. Night Shyamalan. Oh. Oh, my heart. <laughs> I, like, I, let's be honest. He's the poster child for culture industry, right? Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. I think maybe he saw that one thing, one thing really worked for one of his oldest movies and he Definitely was trying to do that over and over again. And the reason why I say that he's the poster child is because I believe that Adorno and Horkheimer would look at him and say, listen, I know that you have everybody else fooled thinking that you did something interesting and new with that stupid, he was dead the whole time twist at the end of The Sixth Mm -hmm. Sense. But he was not the first person to add a twist on the end Mm -mm. of a movie. And it's become an expectation now, not only in horror movies, but across all genres, that there is going to be some sort of twist at the end. Yeah. And I, I, it's gotten to the point where I really appreciate a movie that just, that does, I mean, the, the whole have a twist at the end itself is a formula, but movies that are just simply scary and just like, um... The Lost Boys I watched recently, and that one doesn't that one doesn't really have a twist. It alludes to something the whole time, but it's not it doesn't come across as a twist that like floors you. It's just it's just scary for its own sake. Again, without having to contrast it with, you know, expectations for something. Like we expect pop or lullab pop songs or lullabies to be nice. So hearing it in a horror like trailer is really weird. The same thing. We expect a certain um timeline of of events in a storyline and when we are thrown off the expectation itself is a good it makes it seem more horrifying and weirder and more uncomfortable yeah so i know this is kind of like a depressing note to end on but like i said at the beginning i did want to bring up that popular culture i think is overall a very optimistic process that we all engage in on a daily basis I am personally of the belief that even when we do see movies like Prey, for example, going back to that example that I just used, people still are creating these amazing fan arts of the main characters in that movie and of the landscapes that you see in that film. And I think that there is significant meaning to people seeing a young woman of color as the hero of that movie Hmm. and not only interpreting that meaning but also 
giving that movie meaning that they may not have seen before. And yes, Adorno and Horkheimer, there is nothing new about the story beats of that film. It's like the but oldest story ever. That, yeah. But it is my opinion that that shouldn't really matter. That ultimately it comes down to what are the people engaging with and what meaning are they giving those movies? Yes. I mean, in the postmodern world we currently live in, yeah, of course there's no new ideas. Um, but I, I totally agree. There are there are still reasons to enjoy well-made media. Um, and they'll take the same story, like the, the prey is just prey and hunted and hunter, right? And the, mm-hmm. like that's that's the uh, that's the essence of horror, and, and it's okay that that's at the is, is that, that it's okay that that's the same idea that every horror movie does that like we're either being stalked in the woods or accosted in our own homes or chase trying to chase after answers that like we can't get or being chased by some weird malignant force. It yeah, I would say the same thing. It is okay, <laughs> and as long as we recognize that that that's what's happening, it's fine. Who cares? Like, a good movie is a good movie. A good piece of content is a good piece of content. And maybe cliches exist for a reason. Like, maybe they exist because they hit specific places in a lot of people's hearts, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for coming on this journey with us as we talk about horror movies, as we try to put a good grade on my final project and so I can pass the class. <laughs> <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> Um, professor no but thank you carmen for joining me and thank you listeners for joining us um i'm sure we have that one listener in rhode island that is just like oh god bless you holy crap they posted a new episode (laughs) they put us out of their mind for so long because it had been so long but we're back we're back whoever here's some content eat it up (laughs) We will absolutely talk about, I I am serious about this. If that listener in Rhode Island reaches out to us and is like, I want you guys to talk about this, 100% that is the next episode that we will do. And we will will release it in two weeks. We will take any of your suggestions. Dear, dear listener. (laughs) But also all listeners. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think that Carmen and I are really excited to get back into the podcast. Um, I am hitting the summer here, which means that I am going to have a little bit of extra free time to do more podcast stuff. And we're really excited to rename the podcast. We already and... have some very tempting ideas. I'm so excited. And we'll ha- when we change it, we'll have to do a whole episode about what we changed it to, obviously, since we started this whole thing with an episode about Kanye. <laughs> We have to. Yeah. And I think we're going to do a little potpourri episode. I have a lot of things on my Google Notes of things that I want to talk about yes. that don't deserve a full episode, but, but have to be bring up. a shout out. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, listeners, if you have anything for our potpourri episode that you'd like us to include, let us know and we will do that. So thank you, listeners, for joining us. I'm Audrey Stratton. I'm Carmen Radford. And this has been Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. Thanks. Bye.